Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Our reading is from Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. I had one sup. I'm uh, sup. <laughs> uh, glad to have everybody here. My name is Aaron Clark. I'm a pastor here at New King Church. And uh, I actually just came back from my honeymoon. Woo! And uh, hey. So my wife, though, Jenna, she is not here. Apparently, she enjoyed the honeymoon a little too much. She didn't come back, right? No, no, she's in Kentucky right now. So, um, hanging out with the hillbillies, I guess. Unless there's anybody from Kentucky here, I don't mean to offend. <laughs> anyways, so, uh, anyways, glad to have you here. So, we're in a series in Matthew exploring the ethic of the kingdom of God. I like to use that word ethic when we're talking about what we're learning in Matthew 5 through 7, uh, because I think that's what he's really getting at uh, in his sermon on the Mount. And today we're talking about a topic that I think is so important for us to get right, and that is the topic of judgment, Uh, specifically how to judge. And already some of your ears might be bristling at that word, that phrase, how to judge. Shouldn't we say never judge, right? Uh, Wrong. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I think there's a lot of reasons that we don't like that word, Uh, but at least one of those reasons is the hypocritical and hypercritical nature that we associate with judging. Uh, So, you know, several days ago, I was having dinner with my bride, and uh, we were in a restaurant in Montpelier, and it was a lovely, lovely time. Lovely time, Thai restaurant, good food, good time, until, that was, I overheard a couple ordering food. And to my deep displeasure, I heard the man utter these detestable words, and I'll have the lemongrass. I 
this happened again in the, in the first service. Nobody else apparently is very hypercritical of, of lemongrass eaters, but uh, I think it's weird, <laughs> okay? Um, uh, lemon, no one else really think that's weird, eating lemongrass. I don't know. It just sounds funny to me. But I turned to Jenna, and, and maybe there's some lemongrass eaters out here. I do judge you if you're wondering. But I turned to Jenna, and I said, I said to her, did you hear that? That guy just ordered lemongrass. What a pathetic, miserable man. <laughs> and, and I'll never forget what happened next. Without hesitation, Jenna shot me a look and she said, Aaron, we ordered the lemongrass. <laughs> now, honestly, I have no idea what she was talking about. I'm pretty sure I would remember if we ordered lemongrass. Uh, but she was under the impression that we had, I don't remember it. Where was that lemongrass if we ate it? But, um, but I think that uh, it's a hypercritical, hypocritical spirit that we tend to have, or at least I have it. I'm hypercritical of uh, lemongrass eaters, apparently. Uh, but we tend to not want it in others, especially, uh, just as I think maybe Jenna didn't want it in me at the moment. I don't know. Uh, but our passage today contains words often seen and used in a very different way. Uh, These two words are some of the most quoted and misused words from the Bible and our culture today. And those are the words, judge not. Judge not. You see them on banners. You see them on bumper stickers. Um, they're, They're words often used to fend off the haters. And at other times, they're used to fend off the Christians. And uh, our culture, though, sometimes can't tell the difference, unfortunately. But uh, our culture, when you get down to it, though, it doesn't have a very reasonable or consistent ethic of judgment. Uh, If you dare to imply, for example, that someone else is wrong, then you are immediately suspect of judging. Uh, In fact, judging is perhaps one of the few sins in our culture, Uh, one for which you are very quickly judged, I might add. So the question arises, is that what Jesus meant by those two words? And I'm telling you, no. No. A nice short no. In fact, Scripture testifies to something completely different. There's so much that we need to understand about judgment. So in my hope to equip you with a more comprehensive holistic, biblical approach to judgment. We're going to look at a lot of other scriptures in addition to this passage. By the end of our time together, I pray that you'll see that judgment isn't so simple, right? Judgment can be bad. It can be good. There's bad applications, good applications. Judgment doesn't have to be hypercritical or hypocritical, and judgment can come in different forms. So hopefully by the end of our time together, you'll have a beginner's guide to how to judge, how to judge one-on-one maybe. So let's ask the Father to be our guide. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, that you sent him in love for us in a ministry, not of condemnation, but of grace and forgiveness, that we are not under your judgment simply because we have believed in him. We thank you for that, Father. We, we pray that you would give us hearts that have that same ministry, a ministry of grace and forgiveness. And Lord, we also pray 
that you would teach us how to judge rightly. Teach us to discern what is good and pleasing to you and what is evil and not pleasing to you. And let us, Lord, have the judgment that disciplines sin in our lives and in the life of our church. So teach us these things, Father. Open our hearts to your truth, to your word. Guide my mouth now, this foolish, poor mouth, to speak your truth, to shepherd our church to your heart. I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Amen. So the sort of judgment that Jesus condemns here is the kind of judgment that condemns, right? A little, almost a paradox what I just said. He condemns condemnation. Um, He's talking about condemnation, but not just, (coughs) a little COVID, sorry, Um, but don't mind me. Uh, Just feel free to breathe but anyways, not just condemnation in of itself. People are losing smell, by the way, around me. I don't know why. Anyway, just kidding. All right, just, uh, not just condemnation in of itself, but the sword that is hypercritical and hypocritical. <laughs> so you see this idea, so hypercritical and hypocritical. You, you see this idea of hypercriticism in verse 2. Uh, For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. A hypercritical person assumes the role of a harsh judge rather than the role of a passionate witness. A hypercritical person loves to pass sentences on people, talks about the sins or the mistakes of others, especially when they're not around. They severely criticize and scrutinize, and their measurements are exacting, their punishments intense and unequal to the crime, if there even is a crime, right? Isn't it comforting that we don't have any hypercritical people here? No, I'm kidding. So, now the funny thing, but, you know, uh, the funny thing about a hypercritical person is that they can't endure the same level of scrutiny that they give to others. And that's why Jesus said that with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When considering if you're hypercritical, ask yourself, is my measuring stick too severe? Does it go beyond God's measurement of righteousness? And would I like to have this attention that I'm giving to others? The kind of condemnation we're talking about is hypercritical, which easily lends itself to hypocriticism. Not to be confused with the critique of hippos um, or other sub-Saharan animals, but a hypocritical person holds up the measuring stick to others, but not himself. He is harsh with the failings of others, but gentle to his own failings. A A hypocritical person is a witch hunter, but is himself a witch. A hypocrite imposes rules, but doesn't care to follow them. And this is what Jesus was saying when he said, take the beam out of your own eye before you take the speck out of another's. And the Apostle Paul, I think he puts it really eloquently in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, a powerful warning against a hypocritical judging spirit. He says this in Romans 2, 1 through 5, 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. These are sombering words. It's easy to be a hypocrite. Uh, There's a part of us, I think, that loves the idea of righteousness and of doing good and of perfection. And yet, there's an even bigger part of us that so easily forgets that we ourselves are not very righteous and not even close to perfect. So ask yourself, could I bear up under the criticism I give to others? Am I guilty of worse things? Is my heart right when I'm scrutinizing the acts of another? Now, in an effort to stifle the hypocritical spirit, our culture tends to lower the bar of righteousness or to do away with it altogether or to come up with their own bar, right? Now, that's not how you deal with a hypocritical spirit, though. All the ways our culture tries to get people to not judge. The solution is a realistic view of yourself. In other words, church, you're really not that great. Did you come to church today thinking that you'd hear that word of encouragement? You're really not that great. Go home and think about that. Um, And I like how the NLT puts Paul's exhortation in Romans 12, verse 3. He says, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Be honest in your self-evaluation. Honest self-evaluation leads to humility. And humility leads to confession of sin. And confession of sin leads to repentance. But humility also leads to graciousness. And graciousness leads to gentleness. That's exactly what the Spirit of Christ was. We all want that Spirit to interact with us, the Spirit of Christ. A gentle, humble, and gracious spirit is the opposite of a condemning spirit that is hypocritical and hypercritical. So a hypercritical, hypocritical sort of condemnation, that's the kind that Jesus condemns here. But what about condemnation in of itself, stripped away from hypocrisy and hypercriticism? Is there a person, for example, who can judge without those things? Or is there a person who can judge, period, or condemn others? Okay? And I want you to think, uh, I want you to think complexly about this. Uh, but what do you think, church? Who, who would you say has the right to judge? 
I hear God, I hear Jesus. Jesus, all right? There you go. So I got to pass out a few gold stars today, so there you go. Um, so that's a good answer. Now, that, that's true, but uh, we, t- we sometimes forget that there are other uh, there are other parties, if you will, not fun parties, but other people who also have this, uh, this right, this authority. So let's briefly test our answers, what we think is the answer to that question. Um, who has the right to condemn? So according to the scripture, there's at least three parties uh, to whom the authority to judge and to condemn has been given. So the first I want to mention briefly, and perhaps the most offensive to our American sensibilities, is human government. Human government? What? Now, this isn't to say that human government is free from a hypocritical or hypocritical nature, but it's true that God gave authority to the government to judge, to make judgments, to punish, even to use the sword to execute justice. Now, many of us would rather have the government leave us alone. That's the American spirit, right? Less government, more self-empowerment. Uh, but God declared it otherwise. The Apostle Paul says that our earthly ruler is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not carry the sword in vain. I guess that kind of, uh, that phrase of uh, no person should be afraid of their government kind of gets uh, a little bit contradicted by what he just said, right? So we've got to think critically about these things. But he says, be afraid, for he does not carry the sword in vain. He is God's servant and agent of retribution to the wrongdoer. Do they always do it well? Does government always do things perfectly? Uh, People are a little confused here. The answer is pretty obviously no. I think we all know this at this point. We have a lot of human history to be able to judge that, to discern the evil of government. But what is Christ calling us to? What is God calling us to? It's to an ultimate submission to him, to trust him. So our trust is in God, not in our government, but our submission is also to the government. So you can read more about this, by the way, about government in Romans 13 as well as 1 Peter 3. I wish I had time. I don't to go more into that, Uh, but go into yourself. Romans 13, 1 Peter 3. Now the second with authority to judge, obviously, is God. The scripture says everywhere that God is the supreme judge over all. The apostle, actually, he's not an apostle. I made the same mistake in the first service. Uh, He was the brother of Jesus, not an apostle. He wrote, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. James 4, 12. Now, if you've poked around in the Bible long enough, that's pretty obvious. But perhaps you don't know that God the Father has actually given all judgment to his son, Jesus Christ. So what does the judgment of Jesus Christ look like? Well, so first of all, he gives them this authority to judge. Uh, Jesus says this in John 5, 22. He said, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. In John 5, 27, he says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of of man, the Son of Man. That's what Jesus was also known as, as well as the Son of God. In verse 28, Jesus described the great judgment at the end of all things when he will judge both the living and the dead, some to life and some to torment. 
As Acts 17 verse 31 says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Who is that? Jesus. Somebody whispered it. Jesus. <laughs> Get excited about it. The judge of the world is Jesus. So, however, it's an incredible truth that although Jesus has the authority to judge, he withholds it. Remember the woman caught in adultery. She was brought before Jesus by the religious leaders. And they said to him, the law of Moses says that we should stone her for this. What say you? Now, they weren't wrong. It really did say that in the law of Moses, the law that God gave. They were testing Jesus. Would he stand with God's law or not? It would look pretty bad either way, honestly. And we often forget in the story that Jesus actually did side with God's law, but he did in a way you might not expect him to. He was so wise. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he draws in the sand, starts drawing in the sand. And we don't know what he wrote in the sand, but I like to think that he was writing the laws of God that each one of these religious people had broken. And one by one, they leave knowing that they themselves were guilty. They couldn't condemn her without condemning themselves. And when everyone is gone, it's just Jesus and the woman, and he says to her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And I'll tell you a mystery, church. That woman is the church. The fact is, Jesus could have condemned her. He totally could have. He wasn't a hypocrite. He was guiltless. He wasn't being hypercritical. She did sin and deserve death according to God's law. He also had authority from his father to do it, but he chose not to. Why? Well, because Jesus presents us with a ministry of grace, a ministry of forgiveness. So you've likely heard of John 3.16. It's one of the most famous verses in the scripture. But have you heard what comes after it? Let me read it for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you see, at this time, in this moment, in this age, God is offering in Christ not condemnation, not the condemnation we so deserve that he has the authority to give us, but grace and forgiveness to us who are guilty. So now consider this. If Christ's ministry is not a ministry defined 
by condemnation, but defined by forgiveness, how much more should the ministry of the church be defined not by condemnation, but by grace and forgiveness? We are his body. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, it's pretty easy to find a ministry of condemnation in the church, right? If we're honest, if we're discerning, and it's really hard to find a ministry of grace. It's easy to find Christians who treat sinning unbelievers, for example, with contempt rather than with compassion. And it's easy to find Christians who are all too willing to slander their brothers and sisters, quick to nitpick and criticize the very people who Christ gave his life for. So we're not very good, we should confess, at replicating Christ's ministry. James warned the early church against condemning Christian brothers. He pleads with them in chapter 4, 11 through 12, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That being said... There is an opposite truth, a paradox, a tension of two truths in which we must understand the reality. We often forget this other grand mystery. As grand it is that Christ gives us a ministry of grace, that he commands us to have a ministry of grace in the church, we forget this grand mystery, that there will come a day when judgment will be given to us, the church. You see, the third body that has the right to condemn, you probably thought I forgot. You're like, you only gave us two. You said you give us three. Here's the third. It's a long second point, right? <laughs> um, but the third body that has the right to condemn, or rather I should say will have the right to condemn in the future, is the church. Though condemnation should not be our ministry in these days, one day judgment will be given to us. You know, I, I never hear people talk about this. It's, uh, it's clear in this. So a lot of you, I'm sure, are like, I've never heard what you're talking about. Aaron's starting a cult. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm not starting a cult this year. It starts in January 2021. Aaron's cult be there. Um, anyways, but uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so no one really talks about it, but it's, it's true. The Apostle Paul, he references this in a letter to the church at Corinth. The Corinthian Christians were actually suing each other, going to court with their brothers. <coughs> Excuse me, COVID. Paul, he points out how ridiculous this is, that they would take each other to court. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. You're going to want to see it, but I'm going to read it for you. When one of you has a, grieve, a grievance against another... Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Did you hear that? Did you know? Did you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? 
And he turns it up a notch right here in verse 3. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? I didn't know that. You're acting like I knew that. I didn't, Paul. Um, Could you expound on that a little more? He doesn't, unfortunately. Uh, But he says, how much more then? If you judge the, will judge the world and angels, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. We will judge the world and angels. How much more matters pertaining to this life? There is an unimaginable weight to those future judgments. He doesn't go into detail. I'm like, what are you talking about? What does that look like? I don't know. But judgments pertaining to this life. Church, are we called to make judgments in this life? Yes. Last time someone said no, and I was like, did you not hear what I just said? So uh, the answer is yes. We are called to make judgments in this life, pertaining to this life. So yes, those judgments are the judgments that discern and the judgments that discipline. So we're going to talk about discernment and discipline. So first, a judgment that discerns. So what is discernment? Discernment is the deliberate scrutiny of a subject to determine if one's words or deeds are right or wrong. It's sifting the wheat to see, to identify evil. If you, an extreme of not having discernment is to say, oh, I don't know if really Hitler was really wrong when he said, that, that's the, that is a radical form of a, a lack of discernment, okay? Um, so discernment is being able to identify right and wrong. It's the sort of judgment Solomon used when he judged between the two women who both claimed to be the mother of the same child. It's the same judgment Jesus used to determine the evil intentions of the Pharisees as well as the humility of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And it's the same sort of judgment that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. There, Jesus says something that sounds a bit harsh when you think about it, right? Right after saying, don't judge, right? And we're like, we're, on, we're tracking with him like, yeah, don't judge. We love that. He says, don't give precious holy things to people who he calls dogs or swine. Jesus is sounding a little bit judgy, isn't he? A little bit there, right? Uh, well, he's actually sounding a little bit discerny, maybe more. Um, I wouldn't call people dogs or swine here, right? I, I, we probably should make that one of our rules at this church. Don't call someone else a dog or a swine, but Jesus would have broken it. So uh, Jesus does. He reminds us that we... So, so what is he doing here? The fact is that he's reminding us of this, that we have been given precious and holy things, the kingdom of God, the precious truths of the gospel, holy, precious things, and we must discern who we're talking to. Are they receptive or are they rejecting God's wisdom? Are they treating the holy things of the Lord as common? Would they prefer mud and what is unclean to what you're giving them? Would they tear you apart if you gave them pearls of wisdom? 
So he's calling us to discern it. Don't give it away if they do. It's like what Jesus told his disciples when he told them to go and preach the gospel to the cities in Israel. If people were receptive, he told them to let their peace settle there and to keep teaching. If they rejected you, wipe the dust from your feet and leave. And God's judgment will fall upon that place in the last day. So discern it. He is saying to us to practice discernment in our testimony. And I think that we would do well to obey. And a profound example of discernment, that's discernment in our testimony, but a profound example of discernment within the church is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which broke all of my understanding of judgment when I first read it. Uh, A man in the Corinthian church was found out to be sleeping with his stepmom. And I didn't catch your attention uh, earlier, maybe that did. Um, Maybe you woke up. And we see that Paul's discerning judgment in this case. His judgment of both the man as well as the Corinthian church. He says this in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You see, the Corinthians were guilty of being more gracious than God himself. You can almost hear them congratulate themselves, right? This is their arrogance. They could congratulate themselves on how accepting they are of this man, how tolerant they are of his sin, how much they affirm him. That Don't worry, you're not condemned, you're fine. You're forgiven. But Paul calls them arrogant for this. They lacked discernment. They could not or they would not identify this man's works as sin. But Paul, he had no problem doing that, right? Paul, he's a pretty blunt guy. (laughs) He discerned the man's works to be displeasing to God. Paul practices what he actually wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. By, dis- by testing, discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So unlike the Corinthians, Paul did discriminate between good and evil. He called out this man for his sin, and he disciplined him. And discipline, that is often where discerning judgment leads, to the judgment of discipline. So discipline... That's what I want to talk about next. Now, Jesus, he doesn't exactly talk about discipline in Matthew 7, but I think it's incomplete in our, what we're trying to achieve here to leave that out. So he does talk about it, however, in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. So I encourage you to look at that on your own time. He gives very specific instructions, actually, on how to go about confronting someone in their sin and how to discipline them uh, among God's people in Christ's kingdom. But I want to direct your attention to how discipline plays out in this Corinthian example that we were looking at. Paul calls the Corinthians to cleanse out the church of evil. And he takes disciplinary action. In verse 3, he gives this pronouncement. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, 
I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So although Paul, Paul was not present, he was not there, he had all the facts that he needed, though. And he didn't shy away from declaring a very, what we would probably consider, severe spiritual discipline, handing someone over to Satan for the destruction of their body. But if you think, you know, this is the problem oftentimes with our New Testament churches, we often forget, we like to think, oh, God's, he's kind of mellowed out over the years. That God of the Old Testament, he was really judgy, mean, but now he's just nice and and cool and we're cool with him. And I, I once had someone tell me, you know, God's mellowed out over the years, you know, compared to where he was before. Uh, but the fact is that God is still the same God he was then. He's still holy. He still is righteous. He still hates sin and will not stand for it among his people. And if you think that Paul's pronouncement was harsh, think about what Peter did. Okay, the apostle Peter in Acts 13. Peter once pronounced a death penalty on two parishioners, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 13, for their sin of lying to the Holy Spirit. And God struck them dead. So you see, discipline for sin is necessary among God's people. As Paul makes clear in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little yeast and the dough will rise. So it is with sin. He says this in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The whole church we forget so easily, is affected by the sins of a single person. And so he says, purge the evil person from among you. In the next verses, Paul gives clear teaching on judgment, both within and without the church. He distinguishes that those are different. He's clarifying his teaching on this for the sake of the Corinthians, and it helps us too. So he starts in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world right? This world is defined by these sins. We'd have to go on a spaceship if that's what it meant to to get away from the unbelieving world. And then he says, um, not all meaning these people, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler, drunkard, or swindler. And then he says, not even to eat with such a one. 
I think this is something that we don't, maybe we're a little bit more gracious than God. Sometimes we like to think, you know, we're a little bit too passive too. We're more passive than God would like us to be with sin. We don't want to talk. We don't want to have that awkward conversation with someone about the sin that they're living in. We'd rather just have a good time with them, have them over for dinner, have a coffee. But God is calling us to an active pursuit of reconciliation and of repentance. Don't even eat with such a one. You got to deal with it. And he says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Wow, that, that, is anybody's uh, you know, philosophy of judgment getting broken down? I hope so, because uh, this broke it down for me. Who are you? It's, it's the ones inside the church whom you are to judge. Then he says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So there's a difference in our judgment toward those inside and outside the church. We do discern the evil of unbelievers, but we're not called to discipline them in this age. We're called to identify their sin, yes, but not to discipline it. The only legitimate authority for their judgment is God and the governing authorities. We're not even called to disassociate with them. We can't eat with sinning unbelievers who are in these gross sins that he lists, but we can with unbelievers who are in the same sins. He has a different, it's a different approach. Now, of course, elsewhere, we are called to testify to the unbelieving world of their works that we have discerned as evil and of God's judgment. John the Baptist did this. He discerned King Herod's evil. This was an official who had taken his brother's wife. And he discerned his evil, and he testified to him of God's condemnation and judgment. And for that, we know John the Baptist was executed, beheaded. Now, that's outside the church, but according to Paul, inside the church, we operate differently. And these are, so we are called to judge those inside the church, now, not with contempt, but with discernment and discipline. Discernment and discipline are our tools for maintaining the holiness of Christ's church. Without them, we will corrupt. With them, we preserve sincerity and truth. Now, some of you might be wondering, Aaron, how many times have you handed someone over to Satan? Right? Uh, only two times. You know. but, uh, and they're not doing so well, by the way. But typically, I don't have to hand someone over to Satan. Uh, typically, they accept a basic rebuke. They accept a sit-down where we talk about the sin going on in their life. And astonishingly, so it was with this man that we're talking about, who slept with his stepmother. It seems we hear about him in a later letter in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. He writes this, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrows. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You see, these are the results of discipline. When we discern sin, when we discipline it, there is reconciliation. Discipline is for repentance, and when there's repentance, 
there can be renewed fellowship and renewed affection. Not only that, but discipline produces the fear of God. After God struck down Ananias and Sapphira, the scripture says that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And we know that the scripture testifies that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot come to know God, to accept his truth, without understanding that it is a fearful thing for a sinner to fall in the hands of God. But why discipline Christ's beloved church, right? Well, the Father himself also disciplines our sins. This is good to remember. As Hebrews 12 says, as a loving father disciplines his children, the father disciplines us. And 1 Peter 4.17 tells us for what he disciplines us, because the judgment begins with the household of God. 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment begins with us. Each of us will give an account of himself to God, as Paul said in Romans 14, 12. He is already beginning with us in this work purifying us through fiery trials, through tests, and through disciplines, disciplines, preparing us for the day that we stand before him. This is a work of mercy, a work of grace, a work of love to discern our evil sins, the sin that is in us, and to discipline it and to repent. Thank God for his mercy and his gracious work to us. So, in conclusion, what is the summary of all these things that we've been talking about? Let me summarize them with just brief statements. Free your judgment from a hypercritical, hypocritical spirit. Have a ministry defined not by condemnation, but by forgiveness and grace. Practice right judgment. Discern what is good and what is evil what is pleasing to the Lord, and what is not. Discipline evil inside the church. Don't be passive, but be active in confronting sin in yourself and in those around you. First removing the log from your own eye, and then the speck in the others. Commend the evildoer outside of the church to the judge, Jesus. You are not their judge. Practice judgment now and be faithful with judging earthly things, for one day you will be given judgment over greater things. And I also take the time to consider, church, what if we, as New King Church, were people who were defined by this? What if we were people who were rightly practicing judgment? What if our ministry was famous for forgiveness and grace, not condemnation? What if we were a people who practiced discernment 
taking every care to judge for ourselves what is pleasing to the Lord, purifying our own selves and our church. Well, I, I guess we wouldn't be hypocrites then, right? We would be innocent in our testimony, having a clean conscience before God and man, and our church would uphold Christ's bride, her holiness, her witness, her sincerity, and above all, God's truth. So may the Lord guide us into this and so much more. Let us commend ourselves to the Father to continue this teaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your ministry that you have given us in your Son, not of condemnation, but of grace and forgiveness, that though we are sinners who come to you so, so deserving of justice and judgment, that you said to us, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. We thank you for this, Lord, and we thank you that you do not leave us in our sin, but you help us to discern it, to discipline it, and to change for your glory and for our good. I pray that you would continue to teach us this, Lord, that our church would be defined by that ministry of Christ, not of condemnation, but of grace and forgiveness. That our church would be defined by discernment to know what is good and pleasing to you and what is not, and to not be passive in our sin, but to actively deal with it, to take the log out of our eyes, to take the speck out of our dear brothers. Teach us these things, Lord. We commend ourselves to you in this work, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.